Hey everyone, this is Darren with a quick update on the More to the Story podcast. This week on Sunday, we finally got to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And for our podcast today, uh, we decided to post the audio from our first Sunday seminar in which um, I took the time to just go through an introduction to the book of Revelation of how to read and interpret it responsibly. Revelation is a book that that probably scares a lot of people because it just seems so odd, which there are reasons for that. And I explained that in this seminar. Um, it's been interpreted irresponsibly for um, for quite some time. And I think we're, we're starting to get back to its roots and really what it meant in the first century, which is paramount for our own understanding of what Revelation has to say to us today. So I hope you enjoy this audio, but I actually presented this in front of people and I had a slide presentation as well. So if you're interested in seeing the video and the visual aids, please go to our YouTube channel. You can search on YouTube Forefront Church at Harvey Park. And when you find the channel, that has an orange and white F on it, uh, you should be able to find a playlist that's titled Sunday Seminar, and you will find the video in that playlist. So uh, otherwise, you can stick around for this audio, but if you want to see the video as well and have some time to do that, head over to our YouTube page. So I hope this is enjoyable for you, very informative. Of course, we always would love to hear your feedback and extra questions as we go through the book. Life at ForefrontChurch.tv is a good email address to reach us at. So without further ado, here comes the audio. Thank you. You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, more to the story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. experience was in middle school, somehow the children's version of Left Behind got into my hands. Do all of you know the Left Behind book series or movies? Yeah. Um, that, that was, that's been a huge influence on pop culture and also Christian culture because that's 
how a lot of people think um, that Revelation is. But I remember, I think it was before we had come together as two churches, uh, in the one, um, I had a sermon, I think it was back in January, where I talked about, I think it's in Matthew 24, where, where Jesus says there will be um, two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. There'll be two, you know, whoever, one will be taken, the other left. And because of the left behind series and being left behind is bad, we think that that's what that means. That we will have to be taken up away from this earth, the world will be destroyed, and then after that nobody really talks about it. Um, but actually, the context of that passage, Noah and his story was talked about just before. And in the Noah story, was it good to be left behind? Or was it bad to be left behind? Who was left behind in the flood story? And Noah, right? Yeah, the, the people who were left behind, it was good. Everybody else was taken away in a negative kind of judgment. And so it's actually good to be left behind in that scenario. And once we start thinking about those kinds of things, our entire concept of how Revelation has been communicated to us over the past century really starts to turn. And that's really what I, what I want to talk about here with our introduction to Revelation. So um, I don't have any notes pages for you. Feel free to jot things down and take pictures of the screen. Um, of course, you can go back and watch it later. But let's go ahead and, and dive into it with authorship. Who actually wrote it and where does it come from? So it is from John. There's two different Johns that this could be, or they could be the same. We're not really sure. Um, John the Apostle is the same one who wrote... Um, the Gospel, and then there's John the Elder who wrote the Epistles of John. And it could be both, or they could be the same person. Um, there's a couple clues. We know it is John for sure. Revelation 1-4, it says, I, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. 1-9, uh, the same thing. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God. So that's where he was and who he was. Also, uh, 22.8 says again at the end of the book, I, John, am the, the one, am the one who heard and saw these things. So, um, is it the apostle or elder? Could it be both? There's a lot of debate. Um, yeah, to the seven churches. Um, and it's also from Jesus. Uh, Revelation 1.1 1, 1 says the revelation of Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants. So yeah, John saw this, he wrote it down, but it was from Jesus, so it's kind of a dual authorship. And then uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So it is, it is from Jesus. Now regardless of which John it is, there are a lot of connections between the Gospel of John and Revelation. And there's, there's some, um, and the epistles as well. So they're all related, which is kind of fun. So, um... Now, what is the book of Revelation? We're going to talk specifically about the genre and the kind of literature that it is. So we know that when we sit down and type up an email, that is different than when we are reading a book or writing up a thesis paper or whatever. There's all kinds of different styles that we we'll use, different genres and stuff, and there are three kinds of literature that Revelation contains. First of all is apocalypse or apocalyptic literature. We'll talk a lot about that. Second is an epistle, probably something we're familiar with because it's a lot of the New Testament. And third is prophecy. So we'll dive into apocalypse and prophecy a lot, epistle a little bit, but I think we're more familiar with that. So let's talk about each of these three in turn. 
apocalypse, apocalyptic literature. There's the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then the thing that looks like an eagle and an ox and a lion and a man. So, anyway, here we go. What do you think the word apocalypse means? I want to hear from you first. Any thoughts? The end of the world. Mm -hmm. Like some nuclear explosion that blows everything up and just destroys the earth. Yeah. Any different sentiments? That, that's that's pretty much yeah what we think it means. However, oh yeah, here's what we think it means. End times predictions, the end of the world, destruction of the world as we know it, Armageddon, all those kinds of things. That however, is not tied to the Greek word apokalypsis. That is what the Greek word, uh, and in Revelation 1.1 says, the apokalypsis of Jesus. Um, here's what that word really means. It means an unfailing or an uncovering. Um, think about, and this is how, how I communicate this. The idea is that um, if you've ever seen a stage production and they have scenes that happen in front of the curtain. Okay, that, at the last school I was at, we didn't have a, a curtain. I couldn't do that. It was kind of annoying. But when I, the high school I went to, we did. We did some scenes in front of the curtain. And then sometimes what would happen is that scene be, behind the curtain would be changing. And it would be getting ready to set up. And then the curtain would open. And those characters that were now in front of the curtain now go behind the curtain. And all of a sudden you see this context of what's really going on in the play, in the musical, in the show. And that's, that, that act of opening that curtain and revealing what's behind the curtain could be described as the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get apocalypse from. So an unveiling or uncovering, and particularly in this kind of literature of the spiritual realm, what's really going on behind the scenes. And the second is a record of a visionary experience. And this really is what, what John had. He had this vision. It, it was revealing what's behind what's behind the scenes at work in the real world. So we see things with our physical eyes, but what's actually happening in the spiritual world? It opened it up for John to see. And then it also is communication through metaphor and symbolism. And this is the one that's really hard for us to get away from because of how, or sorry, this is, it's hard to get to this and away from reading literally um, because of how Revelation has been communicated to us for a while. So, um, apocalyptic literature in the first century was very common. Um, you, if you've read Revelation, I imagine you know that there are dragons. There's also like a princess or a queen. Well, what do we think of when we start reading a story about princesses and dragons? In our world, what literature is that? Fantasy. Fantasy, fairy tale. Right, we have a category for those things. We do not have a category for this in our modern literature. There's nothing like it, and that's why it's so difficult. But in the first century... It was extremely common. Um, there are some books in what's called the Apocrypha, which were written in what we call the 400 years of silence, after Malachi, but before Jesus. There was a lot. It, it actually was anything but silent. There were tons of literature being written. And a lot of them were apocalyptic literature of these Jewish rabbis and Hebrew people who were having visionary experiences and writing it down in this style. There were rams with seven horns and ten eyes. There were dragons. There were all kinds of things, very similar to what we read in Revelation. And they understood that this is how um, apocalyptic literature was communicated, through, mainly through metaphor 
and symbolism. So that's Apocalypse. Any questions about that? All right, next one is Epistle 11. This is one we're common with. Uh, so it has a two, the seven churches, from John, from Jesus. That's very common. Um, a greeting and a blessing. Paul uh, almost always writes grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning and sometimes at the end of his letters as well. And then it addresses specific issues that are known to the recipients. Those letters to the churches that we mentioned, those aren't just some random thing. There are actual seven churches, actually seven churches, and if you go to a map, they will form a semicircle in modern-day Turkey, in, in um, what was then Asia Minor. It's still Asia Minor, but modern-day Turkey. Um, and so it was written to address exact and specific things. Um, and we're going to talk about this later. It was actually meant to be understood by them. John wasn't seeing this random thing that nobody knew what was going on. I think that would have happened, um, that Revelation wouldn't have made it into Scripture, if that would have happened. So it was known what the meaning of, of Revelation was because it's written to those, those people, to the seven churches. Okay, prophecy. Let's spend some time here. So, um, John writes language that equates his words on the same level as Old Testament prophecy, say from Ezekiel and Isaiah. Um, when he says in chapter 1, um, verse 10, here's how that reads, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Um, that verse alone conjures up stuff from Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and those words that he's using are, are verbatim, of course, in Greek from the Hebrew, but th they are very much the same kinds of things that an Old Testament prophet would have read. So as he's writing this, he's putting this up there as an equal pro prophetic word as it was in the Old Testament with all these, all these prophets. And so that's very important. When he, when, when, when he says, uh, I was in the Spirit, Ezekiel writes that all the time. Um, uh, Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord and the trumpets and all that kind of stuff. So, um, prophecy for us is, we think of it as someone standing here and saying like, I know what's going to happen in the future. And this is going to happen and I'm giving you a prophetic word and you, you better be warned because this is coming. That's kind of what we think about often. Um, but in the Old Testament specifically, prophecy is a person, one of these prophets, standing in the gap between the wrath of God and the people. And that person is pleading with the sinful people to repent. Because that prophet knows that the wrath of God is coming for them unless they stop going the way that they're going. And the prophets had their heyday when, when um, the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were turning from and towards God in, in the stories that we read about in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Um, those prophets were operating there because, hey, you are in, we are in, um, we're potentially going to break this covenant with God. And he's no longer going to protect us if we do that. So we need to stop, stop worshiping these foreign idols and these foreign gods and turn back and actually worship the God who saved us. We're, we're turn and worship Yahweh. So that's really what prophecy is. And there are three kinds that we read about in the Old Testament. There's foretelling, near foretelling, and future foretelling. Have any of you heard of these? 
So, and, and we'll, we'll get into this here in a second. I'll give you an example of, of what um, these are. But forth telling, um, I had a, a professor at Denver Seminary say, this is stop, drop, and roll, repent, you're on fire. Do it now, because you, you, you're you gonna you're gonna get it, okay? So stop, drop, and roll, repent. God's redemptive plan of humanity is at risk because of you. And if you don't turn now, it will not go well for us. So that's what foretelling is. And that's what most prophecy in the Old Testament really is. Speaking into the time that they were in, not some future prediction kind of thing. That's where we get into the near and future foretelling. So near foretelling is essentially, do you want proof that I'm speaking the truth of God to you? Here's some things that will happen soon. And because of those things that will happen soon, maybe you'll come back to the words I spoke to you in the first place, my foretelling, and you will realize that I am a prophet of God. That's what near foretelling would be. Here's some things that will happen soon to prove that I know what I'm talking about, that God is actually using me as a prophet. And then future foretelling is what we typically think of prophecy, but this is such a small part of what we actually read in the Bible. Future foretelling is a prediction of future events in order to preserve the remnants of God's people and show how God's redemptive plans will come to pass. And it's really meant as an encouragement to the faithful, but also a warning to the unfaithful. So there are three kinds of prophecy, and we see these in Revelation. There's obviously some things that are going to be in the future as John sees these visions, but there's also, for example, the words to the seven churches. Those are, those are forth-telling right now. You, you need to stop, drop, and roll, repent, you're on fire. Okay, that was you know, to the Laodiceans with the hot and cold thing. Um, other churches were in, in threat of, of losing their, their, their star, or losing their lamp. Right? Stop, drop, and roll, you're on fire. Repent now. Okay? Questions about prophecy? I think a lot of us would like to know about what a modern-day prophet would look like and how to know if that prophet is of God or has some kind of mental illness. You know. Oh, yeah. So when when someone speaks prophecy over another person, usually it's it's um, it's an encouragement in, in modern day. Like we see Paul talk about this in in First Corinthians, where he says. Um, I wish that everyone would prophesy because that is meant for edification, for building up the church, for supporting people of God. Um, and, and that's primarily forthtelling, speaking into the situation, helping people turn and repent to God or, or encourage them in the way that they're going. So that's really, I think, what modern-day prophets do. When you hear someone just standing on stage, you know, hitting a table, and that's, that's not really what a... What a, a prophet really is. Now, in the Old Testament, yeah, they would stand out in the town square and shout at people, but you know that doesn't connect with our culture today. So that's not how, how God works sometimes. Other questions? All right. So let's get into so those three kinds of literature. We got apocalypse, epistle, and uh, prophecy. We'll talk about those a bit more. But I want to turn to interpretation of Revelation. What are some things you've heard? about how to interpret Revelation. Someone mentioned it was like end, like the end of the world, end times, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Is that what you were going to say, Courtney? I was just going to say, I think there's, like the last, it's either the first verse or the last verse says something like, you're blessed for just reading it. Mm -hmm. And we'll so, that, yeah. so my attitude has always been just read it, 
I hope something sinks in. I hope that, you know, I understand it some of kind of a deeper level that I'm meant to understand it without putting too much pressure on myself to totally get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've also heard that some of it describes things that have already happened and some of it describes things that were happening at the time or maybe in the very near future, mm -hmm. like from that, from the time it was written. Yeah. And that would match up with the prophecy, the foretelling, near foretelling, and future foretelling, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and look at some things. I'm going to use some big words, but I'm going to try to explain them clearly so we know what I'm talking about. A hermeneutic, everyone say hermeneutic, go. Hermeneutic. That is a lens which we use to interpret the Bible. So if I have, I'll use my glasses as an example. Um, if I have two different ways I want to look at scripture, I can change out, you know, one lens and look at it this way. And then a different way I can look at it, this. It's essentially a way, a category, a system for which we're going to use to interpret the Bible. Not just Revelation, but, but overall. Um, and here's a couple examples of a hermeneutic. This is by far the most popular in modern scholarship. So all those people in ivory towers who are writing commentaries and books about the Bible, they use, for the most part, the historical grammatical approach. I should say, mostly in the evangelical world in which we, we ascribe to that the Bible is, is the highest form of revelation from God. Um, and the historical means that what was happening at the time what did it mean to the people that it was written to? The grammatical side of that is, what do the words actually say? There's a whole realm of study. Thousands and billions of words have been spilled onto, onto pages about, what does this one Greek and Hebrew word mean? Uh, what does it mean in this place? What does it mean in this place? Because if I say something, for example, um, uh, go pick up that bat. What am I talking about? <laughs> it could be, right? Yeah, there, there's a bat that flies lying on the ground, and yeah. But what else could I be talking about? Baseball bat. Baseball bat, yeah. So what does the word bat mean? Well, you need context. That's what the grammatical approach of this is trying to figure out. I have a ton more examples of that, but we got to go. Um, here's another example, and if you are a, uh, if you've watched the Bible story at all, or not, not, no, sorry, if you've yeah, watched or listened to the Bible Project. Um, this is their hermeneutic. The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so when you're reading an Old Testament prophet, Genesis, uh, the Epistle of John, Second Epistle, everything is, is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So the Old Testament points to Jesus, the New Testament points to Jesus. All of it is about the Messiah and the Savior of the world. So that's an example of, of that hermeneutic. Oh, yeah, here we go. Okay, so some hermeneutical options. So some ways to look at Revelation specifically. And I'll, I'll put a, a disclaimer. These are not scholarly terms, but uh, scholars have proposed them, and these are my loose definitions of popular interpretations that you may have heard of. So first one, Revelation. The audience had no idea what they were talking about. Um, John was seeing something that he, not even he had words to describe. Uh, and so when he wrote these things down... Um, the Holy Spirit just made sure it got into Scripture for us, now in modern day times, to go back and, and be able to interpret it. So that's one popular opinion. 
Another popular opinion, uh, a hermeneutical option, was that John was wrong. He said Jesus would come back soon, but he hasn't. And so Revelation is kind of like not that important because John was wrong. Something is wrong with Revelation. Okay? A third was that, no, John was right, and Jesus already came back, and we're in trouble. <laughs> and therefore, Revelation doesn't matter either. Uh, but Second Thessalonians is actually addressing that exact question, because in the Thessalonian church, some people had died, and they're like, hang on, I thought Jesus was going to come back soon. What? So my friend just died. What does that mean for us as a Christian? That's what Second Thessalonians is about. It's addressing mostly that problem. And then, we're going to get into something intense here. Dispensationalism. Have any of you heard that word? Mm-hmm. One, two, three and a half. Okay. <laughs> um, so, the, but you've probably heard of the rapture, I imagine, and the millennium. Yeah. So, uh, dispensationalism. I'm going to show us a video. Um, this, I, I, I don't believe in insulting your intelligence, but this one, this is this is deep. Okay. So, um, this is from GotQuestions.org. Uh, I'll say this disclaimer: GotQuestions generally gets it right. Um, but we're going to talk about this because I, I just have a lot of issues with reading the Bible in this way. So this guy is going to describe what dispensationalism is and why it matters for reading the Bible, specifically prophecy and also interpreting Revelation. Um, and this idea is really how we've interpreted Revelation and how it's been communicated to us. This is where the Left Behind series comes out of and all those kinds of things. So, good luck. A dispensation is a way of ordering things, an administration, a system, or a management. In theology, a dispensation is the divine administration of a period of time. Each dispensation is a divinely appointed age. Dispensationalism is a theological system that recognizes these ages ordained by God to order the affairs of the world. So I'll pause it right there. Um, so, before humanity was created, there was a dispensation. When humanity was created, there was a separate dispensation. Um, when God established a king in Israel, there was another dispensation. When Jesus came, there was another dispensation. And we are waiting for the last dispensation, which will happen in the millennium and the rapture described in Revelation 20. That's what those mean. Uh, I wanted to say that up front, just so you know. So, I, I, when he says, like, it's a divine administration, it's how God deals with people before sin... After sin, with Israel, with the kingdom of Israel, with Jesus and grace, and the cross, and then in the end. That's kind of where that's going from. So, now I'll let it play. Nationalism has two primary distinctives. First, a consistently literal interpretation of scripture, especially Bible prophecy. And second, a view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church in God's program. Classical dispensationalism identifies seven dispensations in God's plan for humanity. There are at least two reasons why literalism is the best way to view Scripture. First, philosophically. The purpose of language itself requires that we interpret words literally. Language was given by God for the purpose of being able to communicate. Words are vessels of meaning. The second reason is biblical. Every prophecy about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was fulfilled literally. Jesus' birth, ministry, death, and resurrection all occurred exactly as the Old Testament predicted. The prophecies were literal. There is no non-literal fulfillment of messianic prophecy.
prophecies in the New Testament. This argues strongly for the literal method. If a literal interpretation is not used in studying the scriptures, there is no objective standard by which to understand the Bible. Each person would be able to interpret the Bible as he saw fit. Biblical interpretation would devolve into what this passage says to me, instead of the Bible says. Sadly, this is already the case in much of what is called Bible study today. Dispensational theology teaches that there are two distinct peoples of God, Israel and the Church. Dispensationalists believe that salvation has always been by grace, through faith alone in God in the Old Testament, and specifically in God, the Son, in the New Testament. Dispensationalists hold that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program, and that the Old Testament promises to Israel have not been transferred to the church. Dispensationalism teaches that the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament for land, made descendants, and blessings will be ultimately fulfilled in the thousand-year period spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. Dispensationalists believe that just as God is in this age focusing his attention on the church, he will again in the future focus his attention on Israel. Dispensationalists understand the Bible to be organized into seven dispensations. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and the millennial kingdom. Again, these dispensations are not paths to salvation, but manners in which God relates to man. Each dispensation includes a recognizable pattern of how God worked with people living in the dispensation. That pattern is first, a responsibility. Second, a failure. Third, a judgment. And fourth, grace to move on. Dispensationalism as a system results in a premillennial interpretation of Christ's second coming and usually a pre-tribunal interpretation of the rapture. To summarize, dispensationalism is a theological system that emphasizes the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy, recognizes a distinction between Israel and the church, and organizes the Bible into different dispensations or administrations. Want to learn? All right. Did you get it? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, just to summarize what, what he talked about at the end, there are um, the three big points was um, the literal interpretation of prophecy, the dealings with the church and Israel as separate entities, and then, what's the third one? You just said it. Oh, the dispensations, the, the ages uh, in which God operates um, differently to between mankind and like yeah, consciousness and innocence. Like before mankind had a conscience, and then we were innocent, but then we sinned, and so there's law and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I now Pastor Nelson, but that's it. He, he's not here to debate me, um, so I can say these things. And also, if I was in the South, I'd be in big trouble. Um, because this is the predominant mode that Dallas Theological Seminary teaches. Um, but I, I just don't think it's really that responsible, and I'll talk about a couple things why. I'm not going to touch the Israel church thing. I also disagree with that. But for Revelation, uh, we're going to get into something a little bit different. So, um, Okay, so with dispensationalism, there are some issues... Um, and let's talk about the literal interpretation of prophecy. 
Now, in general, it, it is, I, I do agree with that. However, that's a narrow sliver of what prophecy is supposed to do, especially when it's applied to Jesus. So let's go and read Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. And there's going to be one verse that pops out of here that you, you can latch on to, like, oh, I've heard that before. Or uh, George Frederick Handel wrote that in the Messiah. Okay? Um, that's, that's what you're going to find. So here's Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. So again, the, lo the Lord spoke to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans, meaning I'm annoyed with you, King Ahaz, Isaiah is annoyed with him, but will you also try the patience of my God? God told you to ask him, and yet you're not doing it. So you're kind of being silly here, Ahaz. Therefore, this is verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So you got that verse, right? The behold, a virgin shall conceive, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Uh, that's from the I sing that a lot, so here you go. Um, and, and that's the verse. So we read this whole thing about King Ahaz not putting God to the test, and Isaiah's like, well, now I'm annoyed at you. Um, God is too, so he's going to just give it to you. The virgin will conceive. And then after that, there's these phrases that before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So when we only focus on this literal interpretation of a prophecy that points to Jesus, we miss... The truth that the prophecy was speaking into at that moment. When we read that, we're only concerned with the future foretelling. We're not concer concerned with the foretelling, the speaking into the culture at the time of what is going on. Stop, drop, and roll. You're on fire, Ahaz. Because very soon, the kingdom of Assyria, which is the kingdom you dread, is going to come in and take you out if you don't shape up and repent. Um, and, and that's what we see, that whether or not th there was a, a child born, the time for that child to grow up and choose right from wrong, I think there was something culturally in that day that there was, there was a coming of age party, right? Like we have bar Jewish people have bar mitzvahs at 15, like coming of age. There, there's a tradition that, okay, now you're, you're, you're accountable for your own choices, dear son, dear daughter. But before that age, your kingdom's going to be wiped out. That's what this prophecy is communicating to Ahaz in the moment. So is this literal? Yes. And yes. There are two aspects to that. There's something near, there's something far. But when we only concern about this literal interpretation of prophecy for the future, we miss what's going on there in the middle. So... This works for the Old Testament in general, with that nuance of making sure we know what happened at the time. But application to the New Testament prophecy is sketchy, specifically Revelation, because Revelation is not only prophecy. It is apocalyptic also. And so if we start to look at Revelation as only prophecy, and we forget that it's apocalyptic literature, which is communicated through symbols and metaphors, 
we're going to start confusing a lot of things that happen. For example, um, in the 60s and 70s, people were reading Revelation and thinking, this is it. The world's going to come to an end. Here it is. Um, and there's a, a passage, I think it, maybe in chapter 10 or 11, where there's, um, uh, there's locusts that come up and they spit fire and their tails sting. And, um, and people were saying, oh, Apache helicopters. Look, there it is. But those are the locusts from Revelation. Um, and so that idea came from that, the, that John saw an Apache helicopter in his vision. But he thought it was a locust. Because that's the only category he had for that. I think that's just really irresponsible. Um, that, that's not how, because that, that is a literal interpretation of prophecy rather than thinking about, okay, what could those locusts represent? Well, locusts are tied to plagues in the Old Testament. That's a lot of negative, judgment, bad kinds of things. So maybe it, maybe those locusts are not supposed to symbolize Apache helicopters in the 60s and 70s in Vietnam. Maybe instead it's supposed to symbolize judgment and something else. And so that's where this whole literal interpretation of Revelation goes askew. And I think it's really irresponsible to try and figure out exactly what every little symbol is and then say, we're in it now. This is it. Because every generation who has this dispensationalist theology thinks that they're in the end times. That's true, actually, but it's not how you think it is. We are in the end times. We are in the time where Jesus is, is wrapping up everything. And, and that's not like it started 20 years ago. It started when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when our, our current time started. So um, we have to be careful about when we think literally about, about Revelation because it's apocalyptic literature communicated through symbols and metaphors. So what, what is the harm in thinking wrong? Does it, what, is it creating a stumbling block for someone where maybe someone would go as far as to say, this is the year that it's all going to end, so live yeah. your life accordingly? Like, where is the, so when you say irresponsible, what what does that irresponsibility implicate for us? Um, that's a great question because, and, and I was thinking about this as you asked that question. I, I searched on Wikipedia how many people have predicted the end of the world, mm-hmm. and there, there's an endless list. Like especially once you get to like 1600, people have predicted it every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jesus said, no one knows the time or the hour or the age. So why are, why are we doing that? Um, so to answer that question, Courtney, I think to create a momentum of fear that the world is coming to an end is irresponsible. Because what a lot of people have done, and again, we see this in First Thessalonians, like, hey, Jesus is coming back soon, don't worry. But then Second Thessalonians is, but not that soon. Like, don't, don't sell your business or sell your house and just lay around waiting for the end. Um, that's, that's an example just straight from the Bible, that... When we say, oh, the end is coming tomorrow, here it is, um, you, we, we get scared, I think. Or we just irrationally make decisions that are not responsible. Uh, I'll tell this story. Uh, Joyce Newfeld, my mother-in-law, she, she was in our Bible study this past spring when we went through this. Um, and she told the story of how when, when she came home one day, none of her family was there. And she was afraid that the rapture happened. And she was left. It's like, where is everybody? Everyone's gone. Um, that, 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 that's a very irrational sense of fear um, also here's a nugget I'll say it here um, the rapture is not a biblical word uh, there was one night in a Bible study where I, I said come up find all the scriptures that, that t- talk about the rapture 
And someone came and said, I thought this was a trick question because I looked at the glossary in my back for the word rapture and it wasn't there. And I said, yes. So then we've been out and fun. Like, rapture is a, is a is an idea, a systematic theology that comes out of a couple different passages. But again, with this whole dispensationalist idea, it's been taken out. Um, and too much weight has been put on this one thing, which is the rapture and then the millennium that's talked about in Revelation 20. Notice in that video, that was the only scripture that he quoted, Revelation 20. The only one. When all of your weight comes to bear on six verses out of an entire book, I also think we have to be careful about that. Because what we discovered in that Bible study was once we got to Revelation 20, it just didn't matter anymore. Because it was just replaying another scene with different symbols and different metaphors of the same scene that had been communicated several times earlier. So Revelation 20 is about, like, yes, Satan is defeated. The saints, those who endure to the end, are vindicated. We are raised with him and we witness the destruction of evil. Um, when we come and say, it has to be a thousand year reign, and we're going to be raptured away beforehand, you're, you're pulling this verse and this verse and this verse and plugging it into this context and creating something that, that when we really look at it in its whole context, all of Revelation, it's, it's just another scene. It's just another way of looking at an event that has been happened several times. So you're probably going to have lots more questions. Um, tune into the podcast. If you don't know about our podcast, um, you can just search Forefront Church in Harvey Park on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and, and we're going to talk a lot about those, um, all these images as we go through the sermon. So we record it Monday morning. Drew and I get together. We just talk nerdy pastor stuff. Um, and then go on there. So anyway, yeah, let's go ahead and move on. Um, here's what I believe to be the most reasonable hermeneutical options. So uh, the best way to interpret Revelation as we read it Revelation was meant to be understood by its audience. Otherwise, I don't think it would have made it into the canon. And as, as we would go into the details, you can see there are so many things that they would have understood. For example, in Revelation 4, um, there's this scene of the throne room of God. And there's praise being thrown back and forth. Well, that happened in Caesar's court. And if you lived in the Roman Empire, you knew about that. There would be choirs over here. They would sing a praise about Caesar. They would loft it over to this choir. They would sing more praises about Caesar, and it would go back and forth. It's a courtroom. It's a it's a throne room scene that a Roman citizen would have recognized. Hey, that's that's what's happening, or that's happened sometimes up in Rome with Caesar on his throne. Um, there's also a place about um, about seven hills. The the beast that the woman sits on are are seven hills. Um, that beast, which is the seven hills, Rome was built on seven separate hillsides at that time. There's coins that depict those seven hills and the goddess Roma sitting on them. That's what coins from the, the day depicts. So um, the, the audience knew exactly what they were reading. Everything related to either something in their modern world or something from the Old Testament. Um, and that's why Revelation is meant to be understood by its audience. Some further scriptural proof is, blessed is the one who reads it and hears and keeps it. How else are you going to, to keep it, which means to obey it, if you don't know what it means? If you have no idea what, the, what it means, like, well, I guess I don't know, so I can't obey it. So, if you're blessed, if you read it and you hear and keep it, that means you're obeying it, that means you understand it. Twenty-two, uh, Chapter 22, verse 10, um, Jesus tells John, do not seal up your book. 
this is going against what was communicated to Daniel. In Daniel uh, 12, verse 4, um, the person communicating this vision to Daniel, so part of Daniel is also apocalyptic literature, he says, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. So Daniel's scroll was sealed. The meaning was hidden. It was unknown until a certain time. Revelation is not sealed up. It is open for us to understand. That is also key. And it's open for, for them to understand it as well. The purpose of Revelation. So it was meant to be understood. The purpose is to exhort, encourage, and warn the readers. And this deals with the prophecy, the, the foretelling, the Stop, drop, and roll, repent, you're on fire, the wrath of God is coming. In the Old Testament, God sent prophets to do the exact same. So as John's communicating this vision, as he's writing to the seven churches, um, as you read them, five of them are in trouble. Five of them, see, five of those seven churches seem to be not doing well. And they're in threat. They're, yeah, they could be, um, you know, their, their star, their angel taking away protection with them. And then the primary burden is not to predict the future, this is again the prophecy thing, but it's to speak into their current situation, which is foretelling. So that's the primary purpose of Revelation. It's not necessarily a prediction of the end times, although there are some things in there, but it's primarily to speak into the current context and to speak into our context as well. Continuing with the most reasonable, number three, we have to understand the historical background. I talked about some of those things like the hills, like the choirs and Caesar's throne. And John tells us exactly why he wrote to those churches, um, to the church in Thyatira and in Laodicea. He wrote for specific purposes in chapters 2 and 3. And then we see the historical circumstances play out. Um, if you pay close attention, sometimes there's a specific image that's given to a church that pops up later. Like, to, to one of the churches, Jesus is described a specific way, um, and that specific image pops up later. Um, and, and the church that read that in their prophecy to them, they would have perked up, oh, that was what how Jesus revealed himself to us. What's going on here? What does all this mean? <clears throat> and the last one is that Revelation primarily communicates through metaphors. This is the apocalyptic side of things. It does not describe things literally, or else we get into trouble, like the Apache helicopters and locusts thing. Um, and in Revelation, it reveals a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. Uh, and this is just quoted from the Bible Project video overview. So it reveals a heavenly perspective, reveals, remember that's what apocalyptic means, a heavenly perspective on history in light of what's going to happen in the end. And in fact, what already has happened Jesus won. He defeated death. He is resurrected. And so that's um, what that is. So, uh, an example of this. Um, Satan, in the book of Revelation, is described as a dragon. A dragon is a fully mature serpent. And so, we see Satan depicted as a serpent in Revelation chapter 3, or no, sorry, Genesis chapter 3. We see him fully matured in his evil form as a dragon. And this dragon goes to war with, like, the woman and her offspring and all these kinds of things. Um, and so it, it, the dragon is a symbol of Satan. Um, and then Jesus, towards chapter 19 and 20, he's described as, like, this 
blazing white figure riding on a steed. He's got a tattoo of his name on his thigh. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. All kinds of really intense things. The battle's not going to be between this Jesus figure and a dragon. It's what those things represent. What does the, the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth represent? Truth. Truth. The word, Truth. The word Yes, it's the word of God. That's how he slays Satan. And then Satan gets thrown into the abyss, like, like, and all of hell, and death even gets thrown into the lake of fire. Um, those are, they're, they're symbols. There's not going to be a literal battle at the end between Jesus riding a horse with a tattoo and a sword and a dragon. That they're symbols of something that I think already actually has happened when Jesus rose from the dead. He already defeated this, now it's just kind of skirmishes towards the end. So, um, here's, here's one, I have one more picture to show you, we'll talk about but one last thing to drive this point home, um, especially with the, the imagery idea. So I'll ask you a question. You can nod your head or shake your head. Is Jesus a lamb? <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no, right. So, so and, and I remember I asked this question in, in a Bible study, and, and we said, well, yeah, he is a lamb. I said, really? Jesus is a lamb? I thought he was a man and, and God. Um, and, and then we're like, oh, wait, no, yes, that's right. So, so what does the lamb in Revelation 5 represent? I'm going to preach on that next week. When the lamb approaches the throne of God, he looks as though he's been slain. So I imagine there's some kind of wound that the lamb is bleeding, but he's still living. And he's approaching the throne, and he takes the scroll, which nobody else on earth could do. He takes the scroll, the lamb does, and then all of a sudden, the lamb is in the midst of the throne... And everybody's worshipping the Lamb, whereas previously, only the one sitting on the throne, which symbolizes God the Father, was the one receiving the praise. So in Revelation 4, God the Father receives the praise. Revelation 5, this Lamb, with some kind of wound, approaches, takes the scroll, and is now in the midst of the Lamb of the throne, receiving the same praise that God the Father was. So who is the Lamb? Jesus. It's a representative of Jesus. Jesus is not a lamb. He is a man. He is God, fully alive at God's side right now. But the lamb symbolizes this whole thing from the Passover. When you killed the lamb, you painted the blood over the doorposts, and it saved you from death. That's what this image of Jesus as a lamb is supposed to represent. So if we interpreted Revelation literally, then Jesus would be a lamb. But he's not a lamb. He's a man, and he's God. So, think about this image as we think about how, how does Revelation communicate through imagery, metaphor. Here's the image. You know what this means. <laughs> what does this mean? Republican versus Democrat fighting. Yes, yeah. exactly. But that's easy for us in America. What if an Argentinian cattle farmer looked at this? <laughs> Would he or she know what's going on? Hopefully Probably not. not. Hopefully not. I mean, yeah, th this is political cartoons. We've got the Democrat and the donkey. We've got the Republican and the elephant. We've got the American flag and the boxing shorts and trunks, and they're fighting. Like, we, we just know. There's no words needed. We know what this means. This is exactly what Revelation is to a first century audience. They get it. They know it. And the burden of work is actually on us to figure out what it meant for them before we can turn it around and figure out what it means for us. And that is really hard, because we're 2,000 years removed 
from that context, from the Roman Empire, from that time. And so there's a whole lot of work required on our behalf to get there. So, um, so why? Because in the whole Bible, God seems to make it timeless, so you can read um, a parable and apply it immediately to today. Sure. He uses agriculture language, right? And we still have agriculture. So, like, why, as we've preserved the Bible for all of these years and God's kept it intact and perfect, why would God give us something so difficult to digest when the rest of the Bible isn't so difficult? Uh, I think... I think that it has gotten more difficult because of irresponsible ways of reading it. Okay. Um, because it's it's been taken out of its context, and so we've forgotten its context. I think that's that's why Revelation specifically is difficult for us, because we just don't care what it meant for them anymore. We only care what it means for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when it gets irresponsible. Um, there's another thing I was going to say. I would also say the, the Bible, we describe it as the living word of God, that, that it, is, it is constantly, like, the word itself is unchanging, and yet it is so adaptable to each and every culture. Um, and that's part of the burden that we have, especially as Western Americans. We think that there's one way to read scripture, um, and we've defined here at Forefront that the hills we're going to die on. We're going to die on Jesus, the Son of God, the Bible is the word of God, salvation is grace through faith, and that baptism is the public of your faith. Those are like the four hills we die on. Everything else, is, we're going to defend it, or we're going to discuss it, or we're going to say like, oh, that's cool, but it actually doesn't necessarily matter for our belief. Um, and so, but universally, we think those four things are true. Um, and I, I say this, the Bible is simple enough that you can get the gist. You can understand the salvation history. But it's also complex enough that would require many, 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 many lifetimes to fully study and delve into every little deep part. So it's simple enough to go through yet complex for a lifetime of study. And that's why I like it so much. Diane, did you have a question? No. Okay. I'm kind of the level. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I'm getting some of it. Yes, but yes. And this, this, I'm ending on this image because this is the main point. We have to, we just have to do a little bit of work and, and harder work than we would have had to do had it been taken out of its context for, for, for quite some time. So, um, what we do on the podcast is probably going to be a lot of identifying. This symbol could mean one of these two things. Uh, this symbol has to be this, or else we're in trouble. So, we, we have to, when we're studying it in, in our Bible study, when we were studying it last uh, spring, we, we essentially had two categories. We wanted to find out what is the main image, and what does it mean. So in Revelation 5, well, it's, it's the Lamb taking power. That's the main image of Revelation 5. Um, there's all kinds of other little things. Um, like there, there's, there's stars here, and there's seven lampstands here, and there's, like, Jesus has, has bronze feet, and he, he's flaming, and there's an eagle sword, or an eagle ox man beast. Like, what do those things represent? And let's stay global, because if we get in the weeds then we'll start trying to nitpick and, and match everything up in a way that it wasn't necessarily supposed to, to match up. So the main thing here is that um, politics in the United States is kind of tough. That's what you can say about this, right? So I think that's really important as we look at Revelation, and that's going to keep it simple for us as 2,000 years in the future. So here's just a summary. Feel free to take a snapshot of this. Uh, this is the, the last slide. 
So, Revelation was meant to be understood by its audience. John knew what he was watching. And we must understand the historical background before we understand what it means for us. Purpose is to exhort, encourage, and warn the readers to stop, drop, and roll, repent, you're on fire. And Revelation primarily communicates through metaphors. And I would add symbolism and imagery. And we should have all of these in mind as we discuss the meaning of Revelation. I want to advance it to the next slide. The last slide is questions, clarifications, or accusations of heresy. <laughs> Otherwise, that's that's the end for us. Any any last questions or comments? Or? Well, I have one. You know, I think actually, I, I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time, but as I read through the Bible, there are a lot of things that puzzle me sure. about you know, especially things that Jesus said and stuff. I don't think it's necessarily easy, but what helps me is to look at it in the context of the, the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, why would he call the Samaritan woman a dog? You know? Yeah. Those kinds of things that seem right. so harsh and difficult. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> anyway, I mean, that's just one example that comes to mind, but I think, I think it is important to understand all of it. And it becomes so much more rich, too, because then we're like, oh, that's what he meant when he said, you know, I'm the bread of life, or the, you know, water that will never run dry, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes more sense when you realize they live in a desert, or whatever. Just the whole context and the culture, um, all those things really help me understand. Yeah. Oh, and then to that exact point, um, in John chapter 7, when Jesus stands up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, that's in the middle of the Festival of Tabernacles, when there was a huge parade where they dipped a pitcher of water at this pool in Jerusalem, and then had a progression, a parade, through the city to the altar, where they poured the water on, on the altar. So, and Jesus stands up in that context, and it's like, uh, it, to me, it's like the Thanksgiving Macy's Day Parade. Like, it's that kind of a celebration, and Jesus stands up and says, you know that water that you're, you're pouring out? Guess what? I'm that water. Um, I think Jesus would pop out of the of Santa's bag of gifts at the end and say, I'm, I'm the present. Like, you're missing it. This is pointing to me. That's how I relate that passage. So, okay. um, what do you think, why do you think we should read Revelation? Why not just focus on easier to understand texts? Um, I think it, it, and hopefully we'll make this clear as we preach it, um, it definitely has the same kind of thing, specifically here. The purpose is to exhort, encourage, and warn the readers. As we try to understand what these symbols meant for them, I really do think those same kind of things apply to us. Um, for example, and, and I preach this, I'm not going to preach it here, but I preach it in the past. Revelation 6 and 7 is where Jesus, uh, or the Lamb, <coughs> opens the seals on the scroll, and then you've got these four horses that come out. Um, I think those four horses are representing different things that they would have understood, and we can find ways that, that it relates to our culture. So the first horse um, is, he's like got a bow, and he's, he's kind of like a warrior. Um, Kind of like Apollo. Apollo was a big god, and he was a warrior god. And so, uh, to me, that represented, I mean, I think to them, it represented false religion. The second writer um, represented a, a false peace, because it was a writer who was sent out to make war. And Rome had this idea of Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, um, that, hey, aren't you glad we're here? Like, we're a great military force. We just conquered you, but now it's peaceful. Aren't you glad we're here? Um, well, that's, that's a false peace, because they're keeping the peace through military force. The third horse is a false prosperity. 
um, because there's a voice that calls out, um, don't touch my oil and wine, um, but, uh, but bread and barley and wheat is, is massively inflated. It costs so much to buy a loaf of bread, a barley, or wheat, um, and yet oil and wine are readily available. Well, you, we can't live on oil and wine. And yet, Rome's like, no, I want my luxuries, and I have enough money to buy the bread too. But the rest of the empire is like starving. Oh, but there's plenty of oil and wine. That's a false prosperity. When you have all the luxuries of the world but no bread, you, you don't get anything. And so, those three horses, a false religion, a false um, peace, a false prosperity. The fourth rider is Hades. The fourth rider on that horse is death itself. And so when you give in to those three things, what's left for you is death. And then, other things that, so that's only the first four seals, but many more things happen. And so that, that's how, and I, I start to relate those then, well, what is our false religion here in, in the United States at our time? Could be a lot of different things, but I related it to, to the hyper-individualism. I am a god. I can be who I want to be, and I'm the only one who gets to decide that. I'm the Lord of my own life. Um, a false peace would be, uh, a false prosperity, I, I think those are directly, directly related. Like, you can have all the riches in the world, but you really have life, and if you give into that, you're going to die, and then what? Like, death comes for you. It comes for all of us. So, those kinds of things that they related to them, I think we can find ways to relate to us as well. Other questions? Yes. Right. Thank you, Darren. So yeah, good. Okay. Well, can I pray and then we can? I'm only six minutes old. And I spend the time in the auditorium. Yeah. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.